Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland. And I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, our guest is Amanda Giordano. She is a licensed professional counselor and associate professor at the University of Georgia. And she specializes in addiction counseling. And she is the author of a clinical reference book titled A Clinical Guide to Treating Behavior Addictions, And that is what we're going to talk about today. So Amanda shares her expertise about behavior addictions. We go into the neurobiology, why certain people are more susceptible to behavior addictions, and even what is the difference between a high interest in a behavior and it becoming addictive. So she shares all her expertise in this field, and we really go in depth and talk about it. This episode is a little bit longer than normal, but it was just such a great conversation and so much good information that she was sharing. I just wanted to keep asking her questions. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did, and I hope that you get a lot out of it. So with that, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Addicted Mind. My guest today is Amanda Giordano, and she is the author of the new book, A Clinical Guide to Treating Behavioral Addictions. And that is what we are going to talk about today. Amanda, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I have a lot of questions. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name is Amanda Giordano, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Georgia, and I specialize in addictions counseling. I'm also a licensed professional counselor, and under that umbrella term of addictions counseling, I uh, specialize in behavioral addictions as well as chemical. Awesome. All right. So we're going to get into all of that. What led you into this work? Yeah. So I really thought I was going to be working with chemical addiction. And so when I was in my doctoral program, I was doing my internship at a chemical addiction site and I had pretty... I think I had gotten some good training so far on um, addictions, but it was all focused on chemical addiction. That's everything that I had learned. 
And I remember in my doctoral level internship, I had a client who came in and talked about being addicted to pornography. And I just felt like I was at a total loss for how to help this person. And I started thinking about my addictions class and all my training and what I was learning at internship, but I wasn't learning anything about how to treat addictive behaviors. I was just learning how to treat substance use disorders. And so it was at that point, I sought out supervision and consultation with a certified sex addiction therapist my mentor in the program. And he really showed me there was a whole nother world of how to work with addictive behaviors as well as chemical addictions. So I learned a lot from him. And then I just kept going in my training and started teaching addiction classes and realized that a lot of the textbooks don't have behavioral addictions included, that it really is kind of divided of chemical addiction or behavioral addictions. And I was trying to do both in my classes. And so I just started reading as much as I could, interviewing folks who specialize in behavioral addictions, and then interviewing folks from 12-step programs for behavioral addiction so that I could become very well-versed in this aspect of addiction counseling as well. Right. And I think what you're saying, you know, talking about this whole issue of behavior addictions, for a long time, it was seen that you couldn't be, quote, addicted to a behavior But we're starting to see some different stuff come up there. Yes. And I'm very thankful for the progress that's being made, especially in the world of neuroscience. That's allowing us to see that there are changes in the brain associated with behavioral addictions that are very similar to changes associated with chemical addictions. And so what we're seeing is that particular behaviors activate the reward pathway or that reward circuitry in the brain, the mesolimbic dopaminergic system, which is very much influenced by drugs of abuse as well. And we're starting to recognize that for some susceptible individuals, a rewarding behavior can become an addiction as well. So there can be a loss of control over that behavior. The behavior is continued despite negative consequences. It becomes compulsive for that individual and they experience cravings or a mental preoccupation with the behavior when they're not engaging in it. And it can have just as many negative consequences as a chemical addiction. And one of the cool things that we're seeing in the field right now is this shift towards recognizing behavioral addictions more formally. So the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the latest edition, uh, actually has a chapter titled Substance-Related and Addictive Disorders. So even in that title, we hear recognition that some addictions have substances and some do not. Within that chapter, we have gambling disorder, which is the first behavioral addiction that's in the DSM-5 in that section. Section 3 of the DSM-5, which has conditions for further study, also includes proposed criteria for internet gaming disorder and non-suicidal self-injury disorder, which we believe will end up in the DSM proper eventually with collecting more um, neuroscience research. So the science is starting to support this idea that behaviors impact the reward system, then we can kind of become addicted to that reward system. Yeah, exactly. And kind of hijacked by it. 
Yes. And very similar to when you say hijacking the brain and the neuroadaptations that come from chronic use, very similar to what we see with substances. But instead of becoming addicted to a chemical that originates outside of the body, we're really becoming addicted to the release of our own neurochemicals. So dopamine in particular. And so there are certain people that are susceptible to this and that's due to either genetics or histories of trauma, even social learning and modeling can influence it. But we are activating the reward system of our brains, causing the release of neurotransmitters such as dopamine, which can, for some people, become very difficult to abstain from. And that becomes their primary means of regulating their emotions. And so we can see the same addictive patterns with a behavior like gambling or gaming or sex or pornography where the individual craves the activity, engages in the activity, activates their reward pathway. And then over time and chronic use, they may find that their brain begins to adapt to this overstimulation of the reward pathway and these chronically high levels of dopamine. So you may find that the brain is actually down-regulating the dopamine system in response to this chronic engagement, which can lead to that cycle just continuing of now I feel kind of dysphoric at baseline. So I need to view pornography or use internet games just to feel okay. And the cycle continues. Right. And it goes over and over again. And I think that's such an important element to say that your brain will adapt to that. If you're constantly exposing yourself to like uh, high levels of arousal, maybe around like porn, mm -hmm. and you're 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 looking at hours and hours of porn. Your brain yeah. will start to adapt and downregulate. So when you move away from the porn, I like what you said that dysphoric starts. Yeah, uh, dysphoric sensation in the body starts to come back, and and you have to find a way out of that because your body's telling you you know, it's not right. It's not right. Do exactly. Something. Yeah. And with the down regulation of the dopamine system, people aren't as in tune to natural rewards anymore because their dopamine system has, it's not functioning as well. And that could either be from a decrease in dopamine transporters or the decrease of dopamine production or receptors. So the brain begins to adapt because of this chronic overstimulation. And then all of a sudden, this individual is baseline malaise or baseline dysphoric and really doesn't get the same sense of reward that others would from natural rewards, like a beautiful day or a good conversation with friends or nice music. Instead, they fully rely on the pornography or the addictive behavior to elevate their mood. And really not just to elevate their mood anymore, but to ward off withdrawal. And so it becomes this cycle and the brain can reset, but it takes time. And that's what I find, especially parents of folks who may have a pornography addiction. They decide on Thursday that they have a pornography addiction. They stop on Friday, and then they want to be completely normal by Monday. And that's unfortunately not how it works. It takes a little bit of time for the brain to reset and to, again, uh, start functioning the way it did prior to the start of the addiction. Right. Do you find that with this new research that is coming out, that the pushback against this idea of behavior addictions is becoming less. And the reason I ask that question is because when I started working in the in the field of addiction, oh, even just, uh, you know, a little more than a decade ago, 
one of the areas I focused in was sex and porn addiction, because mm. when I, I, I worked with chemical addiction like you, but mm-hmm. then when people started coming in and they started getting recovery from that, they said, Hey, you know, I have this other problem, yes. this other issue and yeah. started talking about it. And it was to me, just from that viewpoint, it was pretty obvious that this seems so much like an addictive process, but mm-hmm. at the same time, there was a ton of a pushback against that. And I think partially because it was around sexuality, but, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a lot of, lot of issues around that, but I, am just wondering, are you finding that this research, what we're seeing in the brain is starting to say, Hey, this is a legitimate issue. Yep. So a couple of things there. Number one, I think it depends on the addictive behavior. We have varying levels of research support. So there's not really a question around gambling anymore. Most people would agree that gambling is a behavioral addiction. The ICD, which is the International Classification of Diseases um, by the World Health Organization, in their 11th revision, they included gambling disorder gaming disorder and compulsive sexual behavior disorder as codes for their diagnostic manual. So I think we're seeing globally more acceptance of behavioral addictions, especially since some of these larger uh, organizations like the American Society of Addiction Medicine, starting in 2011, they included behavioral addictions in their official definition of addiction. And that was retained in the 2019 definition that they just released, that addiction can be a disease that involves chemicals or rewarding behaviors. So even though the public, I believe, is a little bit further behind, I think we're seeing these major influential organizations recognizing behavioral addictions. And unfortunately, I think It'll take some time before that's fully recognized by society at large. One of the big pushbacks I tend to hear is we're just going to start pathologizing everything. So anything that people do can become an addiction. And the way I respond to that is behavioral addictions have a very clear set of criteria. So it's not just high involvement in a behavior or even high enthusiasm for a behavior. There's very specific criteria that would differentiate a professional athlete from someone with exercise addiction or a professional gamer from someone with internet gaming disorder. And so it's not just pathologizing all behaviors that people engage in uh, for long periods of time. It's much more specific than that. Right. And I think that becomes a a big fear for people. Like you're going to take away this behavior Mm -hmm. that I enjoy and I feel is healthy. And you're going to tell me it's, it's addictive. And unfortunately that does happen in our community where behaviors that are relatively healthy are pathologized too. So that's definitely a concern. Yeah. And I think the best way to conceptualize it is to think of behaviors on a continuum where we might have healthy engagement on one end, and then we have the pathological engagement or addictive behavior on the other end. And so it can be difficult to determine, okay, is this just high involvement in a behavior? Has it crossed over to this behavioral addiction? And one of the best ways I can uh, talk about how to recognize behavioral addictions, this is something I teach to my students quite often to help them recognize it in their clinical work is 
the four C's of addiction. And so in order to differentiate between just high involvement in a behavior or a behavioral addiction, we look for these four C's. And it's, is the behavior compulsive? So is the person engaging in this behavior because they have this strong urge to do so, even when it's not the opportune time? Do they have a loss of control? So are they engaging in the behavior for longer periods of time than they wanted to? They might try to limit or say, I'm not going to engage in that behavior except on the weekends, but they find that they can't control their engagement. Do they continue despite negative consequences? And so just like with chemical addiction, there are a lot of negative consequences that can come from behavioral addictions, everything from finances to legal repercussions to health issues. And so are they continuing to engage despite these negative consequences? And then the fourth C is craving. So do they find themselves craving that behavior when they don't have access to it and they're mentally preoccupied with it? So they're either thinking about the last time they engaged or fantasizing about the next time they're going to engage. So they really can't even be in the present moment because they're mentally obsessed with this behavior. If those four things are present, I think that warrants further exploration of a behavioral addiction rather than just high involvement in a behavior. Right. You're starting to, to see this engulf their whole life and mm -hmm. they're starting to lose aspects of their life that I guess brings about balance, contentment, reward, exactly. satisfaction yeah. uh, in, in their life. They, they're probably starting to lose that because this is taking everything and those things are getting ignored. All those other things we need, yep. relationships, work, hygiene, yes. all those yeah. things start to, start to wane in spite yep. of of this. Yeah. And there's a components model um, that Griffiths put forth that says, if these six components are present, then the individual likely has a behavioral addiction. And one of them is salience, that the behavior becomes the most salient part of their life, almost like it is the thing that their life is orbiting around. They're constantly thinking of, do I have money to engage in this behavior? Do I have the time to engage in the behavior? They're recovering from the behavior. They're thinking about their next opportunity. Since these behaviors are rewarding, meaning they activate the reward pathway, there's going to be a release of neurochemicals, neurotransmitters, of which one is almost always dopamine. And we know that the dopamine system is partly we're wired to have a release of dopamine when we're engaging in a behavior that is important to survival, like eating food, like engaging in sexual activity. These are called natural rewards, and we are wired to find them rewarding so that we repeat those behaviors in the future and we can continue our species. For these rewarding behaviors that aren't helpful to our survival in any way, like gaming or pornography use or gambling, the brain is still recognizing that burst of dopamine that comes from engaging in these behaviors. And the chronic elevation of dopamine tricks the brain into thinking, this must be a really important activity. Uh, it must be necessary for my survival. So it becomes the most salient thing in the individual's life because their brain is literally telling them, you need this to survive. And it becomes more important than family relationships, jobs, education. And that's why we see people with addiction kind of make the choices that they do. And from the outside, it just seems so illogical. Like, why would you do that? 
bad and you're risking so much, but their brain is telling them, you need this, you need this. This is the only way you know how to feel okay. And so it really helps us when we understand the neuroscience, we can have a lot more empathy for people with addiction because we understand their experience might be very different from someone who's not genetically predisposed to addiction. The euphoria they feel when they game or when they eat or when they gamble may be so much higher and very different from someone who maybe didn't have reward deficiency syndrome or some of these other hypotheses about what makes someone susceptible to addiction. Right. And I mean, it goes back to what you said earlier, when someone stops this behavior that now the brain is saying is this is this is so important for survival and they go into that dysphoric state. Yeah. It's so hard to stay in that dysphoric state. Mm-hmm. And that's where they need the support and the compassion to walk through it, why the brain slowly changes back and creates a little more balance in their life. Yeah. So Patrick Carnes, who's one of the lead researchers in sex addiction, said that it can take someone with sex addiction three to five years to fully get back to the way that they were before the addiction started. And that's so much different than what we think about in our society where we kind of want these quick fixes. But you're exactly right. There has to be a relapse prevention program in place. There needs to be a recovery plan to really help people get through those difficult first, you know, 12 to 18 months as their brain is getting back to equilibrium and what it was before it started downregulating the dopamine system. And that's why one of the things I tell my students too is just the sheer number of 12-step support programs for behavioral addictions is compelling enough for me to realize that there is an issue here with particular behaviors in our society. And when I interviewed folks for my book um, about their experience in the 12-step program, I mean, everything from Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous to Gambling Anonymous to Computer Gamer Addicts Anonymous to Sex Addicts Anonymous, they all said the same thing is that they need a community that they can meet with regularly to help them stay on track towards their recovery. It can be such a shameful and isolating thing to have a behavioral addiction. And so I think becoming aware of the number of 12-step programs that are available can be really helpful, especially for clinicians making referrals. I think that definitely just shows what a need there is for people in the community who are are struggling with these behaviors. Yes. Yeah. And I think another thing that people maybe don't know is there are specific certifications and specializations for mental health professionals to work with some of these behavioral addictions. So you can be certified as a certified sex addiction therapist and you can get a certification in gambling addiction. So there are proven effective methods of treatment that we know can help people with these behavioral addictions. So not only do behavioral addictions exist and not only do support groups exist, but there are also proven evidence-based practices that we know can help people with these behavioral addictions reach recovery. Right, right. Definitely. Definitely. Get help. If you need support, get help. Um, A question, is there particular behaviors that tend to be more addictive than other behaviors? Like what kind of behaviors activate this part of the brain? Yeah. So when we think about rewarding behaviors, these are going to be the things that are 
very stimulating and they tend to mimic our natural desires or instincts. So some of the most common behavioral addictions that we see in the research right now is internet gambling disorder, um, especially in other countries in Asia in particular. They have documentaries coming out about how they're treating internet gaming disorder. It's becoming more prevalent in the States. So any society that has technology and Wi-Fi, we're starting to see social media addiction, the gaming addiction, and online gambling as well. Now that sports betting has become legal in several states, we're seeing an uptick in some of the gambling addiction rates. Anything that would be considered what's called a supernormal stimulus. And so by supernormal stimulus, this is an artificial exaggeration of one of our natural instincts that can be particularly activating to our reward system. So pornography is a good example of that, of you may find a offline sexual partner rewarding, but online it's just this exaggerated artificial imitation of that. So you can find novel sexual partners with every tab that you click and there are always available. And so it's just this exaggerated version. If you think about processed sugar compared to the sweetness of a strawberry or a peach, it's very condensed. We have refined foods that are very high and potent in sugar and fats. And so that's been called a super normal stimulus that the artificial exaggeration actually is more rewarding and more activating than the natural reward itself. And if you think about the online world of of gaming and how stimulating it is. I mean, there's so many supernormal stimuli that are coming out right now that I think there's quite a few potentially addictive behaviors, particularly in the realm of technology. And I think we'll continue to see more as technology advances. You know, I was thinking about, I'm not a huge online gamer or anything like that, but I remember once I, I was playing I can't remember what game it was, but you you go about and you kill monsters and then you get a reward. Sometimes you get a reward. And yes. I remember uh, my friend was saying something to the effect of it's just like a giant Skinner box from yes. that, yeah. from that, you know, that, yeah, that, that classic experiment. And, yeah. and it was, it was like, you could just feel your like, I'm just going to do mm-hmm. it one more, just maybe yep. one, maybe this time I'm going to win. Yeah. And what you're describing is variable ratio reinforcement scheduling, which basically means you know a reward is coming, but you don't know when. You don't know how many times you have to engage in a behavior before that reward will be dispensed. Same thing they use for slot machines. And again, now we have the electronic gambling machines that you can play so much faster and have so many more chances to win in any given amount of time than you would on the old-fashioned slot machines. So everything that uses that variable uh, ratio reinforcement scheduling is really hard to extinguish. It's a very powerful reinforcer. It keeps people coming back. And you mentioned it in internet games, which loot boxes and rewards very much fall under the Mm -hmm. variable ratio reinforcement scheduling. But also think of social media. So I put a post or a picture online I don't know when a like is coming. I don't know when a positive comment is coming or a retweet or a share, but I know it's probably coming. So I check and I check and I check and it becomes compulsive because I'm looking for that reward. 
And a lot of the designers of these platforms know this and they know that the notifications we get on our phone that tells us we have a like or we have an update, that little red symbol that we see, that actually spikes our dopamine of saying, oh, a reward is coming. And so there's a lot of strategies that are put into these behaviors that are designed to keep us coming back or to keep us using or keep us checking. Um, It's not necessarily built for the welfare of the user so much as it's built to keep us engaged in the activity. Well, if you're not engaged, they're not making money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they have a, they have a, they're very incentivized to design this in a way that keeps us coming back. Yep. So yeah. Money. Yep. And there's a really good book out there called Irresistible by Alter. And he really talks about all the strategies used in things like even wearable technology, how that can trigger our dopamine system of, I need to get to a certain amount of steps, or I need to keep my heart rate in this range. And then I get some sort of little reward from my wearable tech. So there's a lot of things that are giving us these rewards that for some of us, we can start craving and chasing and it can become out of control. Right, right. What about, because for some people, right, they're going to do this and they're going to be able to, to put it down. Yeah. And for others, that's quite a bit different. Yes. So there are two main things that we're seeing in the literature that really supports what makes someone susceptible for an addiction or a behavioral addiction. One is genetics. We know that genetics plays a role in addictive behaviors, not all of it. It's a piece of the puzzle rather than the whole puzzle. But this idea of reward deficiency syndrome, or if folks are genetically predisposed with a deficiency in a neurotransmitter or an underactive reward system, they may seek out their own ways to stimulate their dopamine system because they're almost in a reward craving state because they're naturally, their reward system is not operating to the same level of functioning that someone else's is. So again, it might be that gaming feels unbelievable euphoric for some people. And they kind of have this sense of this is what I've been missing my whole life. And for another person, they can game and say, I could take it or leave it. You know, that was nice, but not that big of a deal. And part of that has to do with our genetics. The other piece can come from a history of trauma. And so what we know is with adverse childhood experiences, individuals who experience toxic stress, they can have a dysregulated stress response. So what that means is instead of seeing a threat, having our stress response get activated, so we're going to fight or flight. um, Instead, if the threat is always there, then our response system never goes back down to baseline. It's always activated. So we have this chronic arousal. We have a um, chronic release of our stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. They're constantly going through us. And that becomes our baseline is this heightened state of arousal because of this dysregulated stress response. For those individuals, it may be that these addictive behaviors help them regulate that emotional state of 
So engaging in a sexual activity might take them from that heightened, almost always on alert, you know, high pace energy state to a more relaxed state or a different way of being momentarily. So we know that from the original ACE study, which is that adverse childhood experiences study, we found that ACEs in childhood linked to substance abuse in adulthood, more obesity, more sexual partners, problematic gambling. And so the hypothesis is that some of these rewarding behaviors can actually be coping strategies for a dysregulated stress response that could come from early trauma. Right. And I think it's important to note that the person who has that activation from early trauma in their in their childhood might not necessarily be aware that they're under stress. I think that's really important. And that also kind of you know, it's easy to say, why don't you just, you know, stop? But right. they don't understand that the body is actually activated. They're yes. so used to it. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I think, I mean, as a counselor and an educator, I'm constantly talking about helping our clients learn effective ways to regulate their emotions. We know that addiction, whether chemical addiction or behavioral addiction, it's really becoming addicted to changing the way that you feel. And so if we can find alternative, healthier, more adaptive ways to regulate our emotions, then we might not need to turn to some of these problematic behaviors. And so I think even in thinking of prevention um, for young school age kids, just to learn emotion regulation strategies, especially for those who didn't learn them at home or have these dysregulated stress responses, they can start to become self-aware of their stress response and then regulate their emotions in a more effective and adaptive way. So that's my long-term plan of behavioral addiction prevention is helping us develop our emotion regulation skills at an earlier age. Yeah, definitely. Because if we can do that, then we can regulate ourselves, we can build a more balanced life. And right. a lot of these things, they won't be as uh, attractive, so to mm -hmm. speak. They, yes. they won't be, we won't need them as much. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. Right, right. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you said that potentially addictive behavior can be both positively and negatively reinforcing. Yes. Go into that a little bit. What does that mean? Yeah. So that kind of goes back to your question of which behaviors are potentially addictive. And they're the ones that are going to be positively reinforcing, which means they activate our reward pathway. So we have a sense of pleasure or euphoria or relaxation when we engage in them. A positive reinforcement is adding in something desirable that increases the likelihood of us repeating the behavior in the future. So if I engage in a behavior and I feel good, I'm probably going to do it again in the future. Negative reinforcement is taking away something undesirable that also increases mm, our probability of engaging right. in the behavior in the future. So if I game and that takes away social anxiety or it takes away feelings of worthlessness or it takes away you know, thinking about my problems because I escape through a game, that's negative reinforcement. So potentially addictive behaviors are both positively enforcing and negatively reinforcing. What we find over time is that those behaviors that started out um, predominantly positively reinforcing, when we see those neuroadaptations in the brain and the down regulation of the dopamine system, 
all of a sudden negative reinforcement becomes more prominent over time because now we're not getting the same level of euphoria that we initially got when we played the game the first time. But now we are engaging in internet gaming to not feel bad and to ward off withdrawal symptoms. So just like other addictions with behavioral addictions, it starts off as really being motivated by positive reinforcement. And then over time, negative reinforcement becomes the primary motivator. Right. No, that totally makes sense. And that's what I see when working with individuals who are struggling with this. Yeah. So another question I have, and this comes up a lot with behavior addictions, is I know in the United States, the abstinent model is what we usually follow with substance abuse uh, use. Mm-hmm. And how does that apply to behavior addictions? Because, you know, we're, we can't just stop having sex. We can't just stop. Right. Should we never, ever game again? Should yeah. we, we can't stop eating. Yeah. Right. So this is a little bit different. Yeah. And so the recovery plan is unique for each behavioral addiction and what this looks like. There are some things that you really can abstain from. So, having clients who say, I'm going to get rid of all the gaming apps on my phone. I'm not going to watch people game over, you know, YouTube or Twitch or another streaming device. I'm really going to abstain from gaming, either engaging myself or watching it. So there are some things that we can use an absence model, but a lot of the other behavioral addictions like shopping or exercise or sex or eating, the goal is not complete abstinence. Instead, the goal is to identify that compulsive, out of control behavior that leads to negative consequences and abstain from that. So when I spoke to folks um, from 12-step groups, they talked to me about, there's it's called different things. It can be top lines and bottom lines. It can be the three circles technique, but basically they work with a sponsor or with a counselor. And if you think of it with a three circles technique, it's three concentric circles and the innermost circle, that's where they identify everything that's out of control, everything that's compulsive and everything that leads to negative consequences. So out of shopping, what is the type of shopping that is compulsive and out of control? Is it the online shopping? Is it auctions? Is it you know, shopping at particular retail stores, and that becomes what they're abstaining from. The middle circle, those are warning signs that the individual is getting close to an inner circle behavior. So engaging in the middle circle behaviors isn't considered a relapse. It's considered a warning sign that you're getting close to a relapse. And then the outer circle, those are the behaviors that are healthy and adaptive and encouraged. And so they go through this model with a sponsor or with their counselor. And it takes a lot of honesty and it takes a lot of vulnerability to come up with what are my compulsive out of control behaviors. It takes a level of trust that you're willing to share that with someone else. But that's how you develop your recovery plan is by saying, I'm going to abstain from those inner circle, compulsive, out of control behaviors. And again, it doesn't always work magically on the first try um, that we know that relapse is fairly common in all addiction. And so when a relapse occurs, we go back to that recovery plan and say, okay, so where do we have holes or what's missing in this recovery plan? What didn't we include that we needed to in terms of an inner circle behavior or a warning sign? 
And then once you have that illustrated with the client, you're able to come up with coping strategies for each one of those warning signs of saying, okay, when this happens, when you get paid on a Friday and you know that's a warning sign for you to engage in this compulsive shopping, what are we going to do instead? And so you come up with a list of coping strategies, which can include a 12-step meeting, calling a sponsor, or engaging in some other means of self-regulation that doesn't include shopping. And so that's really what a lot of the work looks like uh, for helping people create a recovery and relapse prevention plan. Right. That this is going to be unique to them. And Mm -hmm. I think also what you're saying in there, which is so important, is doing it with someone else, getting someone to help you look at your behavior and be honest about it. Because at the same time, your brain wants you to go back because it it feels some of the stuff is about survival, even though on a logical level, we, we know it's not. Yes. But our maybe our lizard brain, if we want to call it that, yes. uh-huh. yeah. says, no, you have to have this and yes. tries to convince you to mm-hmm. to kind of go back to this destructive behavior that's actually exactly harm. Yeah. And that's why group counseling and the 12 step fellowship programs can be so helpful because you're in a room with people who can hold you accountable or ask those questions you might not want to ask yourself about, well, you haven't said anything about this behavior and really help with the accountability, but in a very non-judgmental space. Yeah, absolutely. So how can we advocate for these people out there that are struggling? Yeah. So I'm really passionate about this, um, especially since the clients I've worked with, with behavioral addictions, it almost seems like there's double layers of shame. It's, I have shame that I have an addiction, but I have even more shame that it's a behavioral addiction. And I don't know if everyone's going to believe me that I have it. I think some people write it off as a joke or, you know, don't take me seriously. And so I think part of, yeah, and that can really get in the way of help seeking if people think, you know, my counselor is not going to believe me or this isn't a real condition. So, you know, I don't need help for this. I'm just going to deal with it on my own. I think the more we can raise public awareness about the reality of behavioral addictions, and that's why I love some of the neuroscience coming out. It's really hard to argue with some of the research that's showing, yes, there's a group of people who engage with internet gaming differently than another group of people. And so I think that sort of research getting it out to the public can be really helpful so that people don't feel all the layers of shame. We don't want people to feel shame and stigma at all with addiction. But I think, you know, as a society, there's still those layers of shame and stigma there. I would like to advocate by raising public awareness and just making behavioral addictions and recovery from behavioral addictions more visible. And so I think that means listening to people's stories who've recovered from behavioral addictions, really trying to understand the neuroscience behind it, and then engaging in some of this preventative work so that we can start to decrease some of these numbers. If you look at, I mean, ever since internet pornography hit the scene and now some of these other things, we've got virtual reality coming out and we've got internet gaming and social media, just the trajectory of behavioral addiction seems to be increasing. And I think if we're going to 
advocate for folks who are affected by behavioral addictions, we need to start doing some preventative work. And that could be teaching emotion regulation skills. That could be informing folks about the risk of addictive behaviors much earlier. And they can start to recognize when they think they're losing control over their gaming or over their porn use, things like that. The more information that can be out there, and especially if we hear from folks who have had a behavioral addiction or who have worked with folks with behavioral addictions, that can humanize it and kind of decrease some of that stigma, I think could really be helpful. Right, definitely. And I'd even say looking at some of these tech companies that are engineering mm-hmm. uh, and using brain science to further their agenda of engagement. Sure. Um, I think we have to look at that too, because yeah. I, you know, I'm starting to see how that impacts us all. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think when I talk to you know students and when I present at conferences, talking about our role as advocates, especially in the mental health field. And so where do we need to advocate and say there needs to be more regulation of this behavior or there needs to be a minimum age or we need to start speaking up for the folks who kind of got caught in these webs of addiction because of one of these behaviors and see how do we prevent this in the future? And some of that might might mean lobbying and advocating and saying, hey, this is what the numbers say. We know that this is an at-risk behavior for a substantial number of people. What can we do to decrease that risk? Absolutely. Amanda, I want to thank you so much for coming on to The Addicted Mind and sharing your knowledge with everyone. One yeah, question I love to great. ask. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. One question I ask is if someone's out there struggling with a behavior addiction, mm-hmm. what would you want to tell them? Yeah, I would tell them that you are definitely not alone, that there are many, many people who are sitting in 12-step meetings today, who are sitting in counselor's offices today, who have the same issue. So I think isolation, shame, and secrecy are some of the weapons that uh, addiction uses to keep us silent and keep us sick. And so I would say tell someone and help them or let them help you get connected to others who have the same addiction and have seen progress and that there's hope out there for recovery. So I would just say communicate with someone, get connected to these resources. The 12-step programs are free. There's a lot of specialized counselors out there who know how to work with sex addiction and gambling addiction and all the other behavioral addictions. So you don't have to suffer in silence. Awesome. And if people want more information about you, where can they, where can they find you? Yeah, definitely. So amanda.giordano at uga.edu is um, my email address. I also have a blog on psychology today and then the book, A Clinical Guide to Treating Behavioral Addiction. So I try to put resources out there for folks, but if anyone wants more information or if I can help connect them to resources, please shoot me an email, find my author page on Facebook and we can connect. Awesome. And I'll put all those in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. Amanda, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. 
We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind Podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com and you can get all of Amanda's contact information there and links to her book. Once again, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, write us a review. That really does help people find the podcast and I really appreciate it and it helps grow the Addicted Mind. And if you want to continue the conversation online, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care, be safe, and I will talk to you on the next episode.